Let's start. Let's start. Any any prayer requests tonight? Yeah. Chuck, go ahead. Yes. Yeah. Wait, sorry. Hold on. Mike, is there any way to get the volume up? Chuck, is your volume all the way up? Uh, yeah, but that's not the microphone volume. How's this? That's good. That's good. Talk into it. Go ahead. Yes, okay. Uh, two prayers, one for Thanksgiving and one for protection for our first grandchild. We just found out about today, due in December. Yay! Right. He said his first grandchild, what? Due in December. Oh, December. They, they didn't waste any time. Yeah? <laughs> what a happy, what a happy, what do you call it? Blink. Yeah, anyway, congratulations. Our second prayer is, um, we won't be here next week because we're going on out, but it's our 40th anniversary. Oh, congratulations to both of you. Where are you going? Can I ask? Where Where are you going? We're going to Paris. Oh wow, Paris is the spot to go to. God, should have postponed it for a week, or you should have rushed yours for a week. And um, congratulations! And we we'll be sure to say something next week when we meet without you. So. You had something. Can you speak up, sir? Both of my sisters and their husbands are just going through a lot of stuff. Yep, yep. Um, can I ask their names? So the um, older sister is Leslie, and her husband is Mitch. And he's um, he struggled a lot through the years. He was When he was eight, his father committed suicide. And back then, they didn't do anything for the family or the children. And so was living with a lot of scars from that. Sure. From sure. kind of being neglected by his mom who was not Leslie and Mitch uh -huh. and the other? Is Kim and her husband's Dave. Her husband's Kim and what? Dave. Dave. Okay. Any other prayers? Thanksgiving. Pain relief. For pain relief? <laughs> That's got to be a happy, yeah. You guys help me out with names when I go over this. Dave is his name. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, um, for Thanksgiving, for a number of things, for pain relief. <laughs> for, um, I'm going to say this generally for all of us because it, I, I, I'm not sure that we say this enough, but um, there's so many blessings in our world. Um, and I don't say this without any sense of the pain that's with a lot of us. I mean, most of us carry wounds or close to people who carry wounds. They're part of our lives. But for all the ways in which um, you are present to us, Lord, Holy Spirit, Father, um, and for our faith, because it's only through our faith that we can make any sense that, that if a God loved us enough to 
to rectify a wrong we did, we have some help in dealing with whatever struggles we face or those we love face. So for all the many ways in which you are here, um, I offer a, um, a special thanksgiving for all of us. And um, right now, especially for this group, because I am more pleased than I can say that we do this work together. Um, we go to difficult things. Um, all that we've done, hopefully, is an enrichment of our Catholic faith. To be Catholic means everywhere, and so far we've taken in an awful, awful lot. They're a part of our inheritance. Um, I hope it strengthens everybody, um, particularly in feeling that we're not alone, going back to Achilles and Odysseus and Aeneas and Dante, all of it, Boethius, on the eve of execution, he was going to be executed. Um, so much is here in our past, in our inheritance, and so much of it today is neglected. It is a great source of strength. Um, it helps enlivens our mind, it makes us capable of defending our faith, um, giving a reason for it, and also for suffering it. So a great thanksgiving for all that we do together. Um, I ask a special blessing on Mitch and Leslie, Leslie and, and Kim and Dave. And Kim and Dave. Um, marriages are not easy today. Um, everything in the world is against them. We carried um, so much into them. I ask for a special blessing on um, both of them in their struggles, help them to see or to trust that there will be a, a greater love awaiting them when they get to a higher ground. Um, fights are going to happen. They're inevitable in marriages. We're so different as men and women. Um, um, but hopefully fights take us to a better ground, um, one that's more selfless and uh, more one with you and what you've offered us. Um, so watch over both of them and particularly um, those who are close to them, their family, loved ones, um, to bring hope to everything that they do. For Bob's brother, um, David, yeah, watch over him in his recovery. Um, help him to recover. Let the doctors be sure in all that they're doing. Um, I offer a special um, Thanksgiving. It's um, wonderful to see Heather here again. I've missed her. So it's, um, she looks like Heather. She's got that um, sunbeam smile always. And I ask a special blessing for Chuck and Lori. Um, a, a, a deep gift of thanksgiving. Their, <laughs> their children didn't waste any time for sure. They, <laughs> um, they may wish that they'd slowed down when they start being asked to be babysitters for their new grandchild. I don't know, we'll see what happens on that. But um, bless that child that's coming. Keep the child healthy in its womb. Protect the mom and the child. And be with Chuck and Lori in their travels. Keep them safe. Um, bring them back home safely. Um, we offer all of these prayers in your name, our Lord. Christ. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> I want to do something that I've, um, I've not done for an age, but I need to do this anyway. This is...
Um, and I feel a little bit embarrassed about doing this, but I need to do it. I'm going to um, ask everybody if you would seriously think about making donations. I haven't asked for that in a long time. You know that if you go to the home page of the Lydda's Prophecy site, there's a there's options up in the right hand corner, and one of them is donation. We have to we have a, a fee to pay for the service of doing this, and other expenses. I mean, there's all the other stuff with typing and work and. Anyway, I would be grateful, both of us would be grateful if you would make a donation. I asked um, Ellie today if I should be asking for donations for the church because the paper output on the part of the church is, I think, really great. I mean, they're providing a good amount of paper weekly. <laughs> I remember when I wanted to go online at St. Francis and they had to take it off the church website and, and move it. I'm not going to go into the... <laughs> not a very pleasant scene there, but, um, but I think the typical attitude towards anything going on in catechism is catechists come in, they teach, they're there for a month or a week or a visitor comes in, you know, and there's cost to cover that. <laughs> we were in seven years. I mean, we'd been doing that for seven years with a good-sized group, and lots of books, because we imagine the books that we covered in seven years. You guys are halfway through it, right? I don't know if we're going to stay, but, um, but there was an enormous cost. And the tendency is to look at this and say, um, if I do it for you, I have to do it for everybody. My God, there's no comparison between what's going on here and the paperwork and, um, you know, in seven years of reading and... But anyway, there's a lot that goes into this, so I'm asking if you would um, consider donating to us. And also to the church. When I asked Ellie if I could ask you guys for donations to cover the paper costs, her response is no, the church will take care of it. Um, and they'll do it in donations. So this is a real push on behalf of Father Flynn and me. Increase your donations for a while in the church. <laughs> because she didn't want to take any help here, but you know how much, I mean, Ellie puts in this work and she, this is a good amount of paper that we use. It's good to see you again. So um, please make donations, you know, if you can. It's, I'm glad we're doing this. It would be good to get your help. That's the first. Okay. I'm going to send you a link on the Dostoevsky book. Um, oh God. It's this book. Oh, you, oh, you are all big wimps. Just stop. God, are you kidding me? Um, anyway. This is the book that we'll be using. If you go online, you're going to find it. It's being, I think it's being offered for something like $40. Um, the, you'll, you'll, I'll send you a link. The same book has been reprinted with a different cover, but with the same translator. And it's a $12 book, which is where the book should be. I'll send it to you. So any, any of you who honestly want to get ahead on this um, can purchase it, okay? And here's something I'm seriously thinking about. I'm, I've got to give this some thought. I haven't made a decision. 
Um, but this goes to the poet that we're going to be reading tonight, um, Miklos Rednati, who's a Hungarian. I'll come to it in a minute. But I'm thinking about requiring this. It's a small book of poems. We wouldn't cover it all. But I would go through it, and rather than ask the church to be printing off stuff, I may ask you just to buy the book. We'll get to the poet in a second, and you'll see why. Um, anyway, I'll send you links for Dostasi's Brothers Kermaz and Rudnati's Foamy Sky, okay? And I would encourage you to buy this even if we don't do it, but I'm seriously thinking about including this. Not to study it the way we're doing the other works, but for the poems. Just to stay with his poetry for a while, okay? Okay. If you will turn to the Rednati poem, let's start with that. Foamy Sky. Rednati would be a popular poet in academia because poets like this have an appeal, I think, to intellectuals. I'm not going to push him on you in that sense. This is not a class, it's not a university class course. But um, I was looking over the, his poems the other night and thinking about one to read because we are on the verge of the modern world. I hope, every, I hope everybody feels the depth of the meaning of that from what we did on Moby Dick. Um, Melody said that it was probably the darkest work we've ever read, in her opinion. And I think there's some truth to that. And part of the truth rests in the fact that it is so self-consciously intellectual. Ahab's reflecting on everything that's of a theological nature. So you can't read that story without being drawn into the, um, the action of a mind. And you know that repeatedly I've talked about the dignity of the mind, the dignity of human thought that it's so undervalued today. Feelings are made everything, and feelings are unreliable. So, so is our mind, often. But in a great poet like that, we're, we're receiving a gift because he helps us to see that there, there's a greater depth to the problems in our life than we generally know, okay? So Melville put us on the threshold of modernity. That's a modern work, and I'm gonna try to underscore that in a minute. He introduces us to some of the darkest evils that are a part of our ordinary everyday life. Very few people are gonna say there's something evil in the Protestant religion. Lots of our friends are Protestant. Deeply, I mean, good friendships. Well, the likelihood of ever getting to that issue in a conversation is small. But you can't read Moby Dick without seeing there's something sinister at the heart, that there's an imputed evil to God. In claiming that the consequences of the fall were complete, that's both Luther and Calvin and other reformers, they imputed an evil to God, whether they intended or not. If there's something evil to the human soul before that soul is born, and some humans are predestined to damnation, where did that evil come from? It didn't come from nature, because God's the creator of what's immortal in the human soul. Is everybody clear in that? It's absolutely crucial to be clear. If, if the soul is immortal, it is because God shares in his creation. We're made in his image. And if there's something inherently evil in the soul, where did that evil come from? Melville is struggling with that. Ahab is the tragic consequence of that theology. 
Hawthorne's not going to go into the, those problems that deeply, but I hope it'll become clear as we read it. He places himself and us on the modern world as well. He does it with the Custom House scene. He does it actually with the Scarlet Letter story. We'll see that. Chillingworth is a very modern character. Very modern. He wants to use his mind as a scientist. His whole inclination is science. He wants to use his mind to get at something evil. But in his case, unlike most scientists, he's got avenge an avenge motive. He wants to get back at whoever it was who fathered this child of his wife. So he's very modern and he looks back, can't, he looks back to Iago. Remember, Iago is very, the intellect, I, I'm nothing if I'm not critical. He wants to get at things and hurt them with his mind. And Polonius in Hamlet, because remember Claudius put um, Polonius on Hamlet said, discover what this young man's doing. Polonius said, I can get to the center of every man's soul. I can get to the heart of it. All of, all of those artists are showing, they're very much aware of what's happening in the modern world, even though Shakespeare wrote four centuries ago, and Melville two centuries ago. So these writers are placing us on the edge of the modern world, okay? And when I was thinking about that the other night, I thought about um, Rodnati's poems because I wanted something that would deal with something sinister. I'm not trying to be <laughs> arbitrarily dark with you guys. It's that I'm, I'm aware that there's something here and I think it's important for us to deal with it. Um, a lot of people are leaving the church, I think partly because they think when they come into the church, it's gonna, it's gonna be a sanctuary. It's, Problems are going to disappear. You know that if, you, if there's a serious problem going on in the world, it's going to be at the center of our church. If Satan's going to go anywhere, he's going to go there. And we've seen the, you know, the problems with pedophile and injustices. And so the center of the church is always going to be a place of turmoil. Um, I think it's really important that we learn to see what we're dealing with in this world just as Christ did when he was here. For following him, we have to deal with these dark things. So, so what I'd like to do is do some of Rodnati's poems. Um, and I'm, I'm assuming that he's a poet most of you would not have heard of. He would be, he would, academics would be familiar with him because that's what they do. Um, he was Hungarian birth, he was, um, um, born into a Jewish family, was Jewish. And this is one of the interesting things about him as a poet. He was Jewish when he was young, and he describes himself as growing up with a Cain complex. He identified with Cain because his mother, um, because his brother died stillborn. Think about it, because you know, soldiers sometimes come back from war with these horrible burdens they carry. Why, why was I left alive? You know, they're in a platoon with everybody dying around them and they survive and they come home with all this guilt, they commit suicide. They don't live with it. Why was I spared? The Ishmael question, why was he spared? He was on his way down, remember, in that bubble. Um, Rudnati's brother um, died stillborn and his mother died in giving him birth. So he had a Jewish sensibility, very sensitive to those things, and grew up identifying with Cain. And he wrote poetry, and a lot of his poetry is out of suffering. He lived in Hungary at a time um, during the German occupation, when the Germans had taken 
when he was a little bit older, the Germans had taken, I think, around 450,000 Jews, deported them from Hungary to Auschwitz to be executed. He was forced into forced labor in mines um, to provide copper mines, to provide materials for the German armaments, and then was put in a forced march on the way to Auschwitz, and on the way, because they didn't feed the prisoners, a group of them couldn't continue to travel. They were exhausted and starving, and, and they were executed, shot and all of them were buried in these graves. The, the graves two years later after the war um, were um, uncovered, the bodies were returned, and I think his wife was actually there to go to her body, his body, and she found in his clothing some of his poetry, the, poet that he, the poetry that he'd written on these forced marches. So he knew he was gonna die, and he never stopped writing poetry. It was like a calling, he had, he had to get this stuff out even though he was starving and dying. So that's the poet whose poetry I'd like to read for a while, even if it's gonna be a little bit dark. It's very modern, and you'll have a sense that will be new to anything we've read, that something is happening in this modern world that changes it from any world we've looked at before, okay? I think you'll see some of it in the poem. But that's Red Naughty, okay? So his poem called The Foamy Sky. Now, let me have your attention, because I'm not going to comment. I'm going to read it and let it go. That's my practice. But just give this thought. We have read poets forever talking about starry skies, clear skies, star-filled skies, you know, pale blue or vermilion skies at sunset. All of them. Have you ever heard a writer look at the sky and use the word foamy? So that already tells you where we are, yeah? Something chemically, as gases and things like that, have entered the modern world in a way that was never true before. Okay. Clouds. Hmm? I thought he meant clouds. I don't think he did. Wait till you hear it. Um, Nicholas Rudnati, Foamy Sky. The moon sways on a foamy sky. How strange that I'm alive. A bland, efficient death searches this age, and they turn white on whom it lays its hand. Sometimes the year looks round and shrieks, looks round and faints away. What kind of autumn lies in wait? What winter dulled with agony to gray? The forest bled, and every hour in that revolving time bled too. The wind was scrawling numbers, huge and darkening in the unsettled snow. I have seen certain things, such things that now the air feels dense as earth. A rustling, tepid silence holds me fast, as in that time before my birth. I come to a standstill by this trunk. It stirs its thick leaves angrily, reaches a branch down for my neck. Now I'm neither weak nor cowardly, just tired, unmoving. And the branch searches my hair, terrified, mute, such things one must forget, but I have never yet been able to forget. Foam gushes forth upon the moon. A dark green venom streaks the sky. I roll myself a cigarette, am slowly, carefully, a living eye.
I'm, I'm assuming that you all heard a note in there that we've not heard before, the kind of poet, even, even with some of Hopkins' dark poems. Okay, so. Sorry? Sorry? No, sorry, thanks for, um, no, he wrote in Hungarian, by the way, the, the translator of these poems, I don't, I don't think I, the, the, the woman who is my dissertation director, Louise Kahn, put together a collection of books on genre, epic, drama, narrative, and lyric. And the fourth volume in the lyric, she asked me to do a piece in there, so there's a piece in there that I've written on, on John Donne. Um, it's called Prospect of Lyric. Take this down, called Prospect of Lyric. I'd be glad if you all bought a copy, you have to go online. It's called Prospect of Lyric, the Prospect of Lyric. And the editors are Louise Cowan and her son, Baynard, but Louise Cowan is the, Louise is an extraordinary, all four volumes on, on, on the genres, epic, comedy, tragedy, lyric. It's epic, comedy, tragedy, and lyric. Offered. So they opened, they, they, they're probably the only work in the 20th century to take genre seriously. Most, you know that most readers will approach literature through Freudian lenses or feminist lenses or Marxist lenses. She's the only critic, that, except one, who doesn't approach it in the way that she, she's the only critic in the modern world who saw that it was absolutely crucial to approach literature as literature, not as something else. So the defining quality, the first principle of literature was its form, hence the genres. She gets that from Aristotle. I, I differ with Louise and we had some interesting discussions. She would urge me to rethink, because I'm saying there's three genres, she's saying there's four. I don't want to go into that. But I, one of the great gifts in my life, just, and her essays in every one of these volumes our master. She's just a wonderful writer. She's gifted in her depths of insights. She just sees things that modern critics who are looking through Freud or Marx or, you know, she sees things that other people don't see. So it's a wonderful collection. Um, Louise Count, if you go online, the last one's called Prospect of Lyric, and it's in that book that I have a piece undone. But the reason for mentioning it is Frederick Turner has the, the closing essay on that volume. And he's the one, he's a poet, modern poet, Frederick Turner. He's the one who translated Radinick. And he met with his wife, the two of them did this together in collaboration. He didn't know Hung Hungarian, but he loved the poetry. So he worked with her and they would work together where she would translate. And he as a poet would try to take the meaning, but adopt it to the prosodic, prosodic elements that Radinick would have done himself. Rhyme, balance, assonance, consonance, you know, things like that. So in his lines, he's trying to be true to the Hungarian original, but still bring in prosodic elements that somebody who's not poetic would, would not do as well as he's done. So it's a pretty good translation, okay? Can you get it, Mike? Can you just click him on? Well, 
The editor's Louise Cowan. She's the She's the editor of the four volume series. Each one has a different editor, but she's the general editor. But if you look at, if you go on to uh, Amazon. And by the way, I talked with Ellie about the um, air conditioner too. She said there's, there's nothing to do. She, it's a big room and it gets stuffy and they keep it on, so. I'm sorry, I didn't get that last name. Cowan. C O W A N Cowan Louise Cowan The Prospect of Larry Okay just a, a quick few opening comments on um, on Scarlet Letter I want to make a couple of broad comments you at the very end of the notes you don't have to go there but I want you, I'd like everybody to keep in mind a couple of um, general ideas that I think are important for keeping this work in perspective. One of them is remember in Boethius, um, who was one of the best philosophers of the medieval period and who was a great influence on St. Thomas. Um, he did a work on the Trinity, but he did Consolation of um, Philosophy, which we read together. Remember, two-thirds of the way through that book, Lady Philosophy says to Boethius after her argument, this good God created everything in the universe, everything's good. And she said, because there's no inherent evil in the world. Everybody's got to see that. If there's an inherent evil that's co-eternal, there's an inherent evil, there's no reason for not choosing it. They're both eternal. Um, our understanding of evil is that it's not co-eternal. There was nothing besides God. God is good. He, he said, I am that am. He's being itself. Evil is a privation. It's not a real thing. Human beings commit evil when they turn away from God. They commit an evil. But the very fact that they commit e an evil means it's, they're going to undo their own actions because evil cannot stand on itself. By its very nature, it's self-destruction. It's self-destructive. It'll bring a destruction on itself. We already know the outcome, and if we didn't know it philosophically, and we do know it if we're reading, taking Boethius seriously, we know from Revelation the battle's over, or the ultimate battle's over, right? We read that. Christ defeated. God is allowing this for whatever is my own personal feeling about it, is he's allowing it to see what our choices are. To see if, because we know if we will choose, because we've got that help. Evil is a privation. Boethius said, there is no bad fortune. Whatever happens, however bad it is, God's doing something with it to bring good out of it. He's doing that to protect our free will. So that even if we do stupid things, we'll learn from them and get better. Because if God's just a, a puppet master and we have no free will, what an indignity to God and what an indignity to his creation. Belief in reason, the power of reason and free will are absolutely essential to our belief. We were made in the image of God. Um, St. Thomas said the root, the root of freedom is reason. Write that down. The root of freedom is reason. Take, a re take away reason, we have no reasons for options, right? The only, the only way we can look at options is because our powers of reason say we can do this or this or this or this. Take reason away, there are no options. You cannot separate reason and free will. They're absolutely integrated. 
So Boethius said, there is no bad fortune. God is taking everything we do and turning it to good. And in doing that, he's protecting our free will. He's trying to work with us to help make us better in the choices we make, even with our weaknesses. Okay? The Protestant belief is that the results, the consequences of the fall were complete. We ruined our essence. In essence, we're evil. We are depraved. That's the struggle that Ahab's dealing with. The Catholic does not believe that. The Catholic believes we're wounded. We're left with concupiscence. And con I'm trusting everybody knows it. I certainly know it for myself. But concupiscence can leave us with the feeling that we're depraved because we can't overcome our sins by ourselves. As hard as we try, they're still there. It's like we're depraved. Catholic does not believe that. He believes we're essentially good, we're wounded. We need Christ's help. Protestant believes we are depraved, we are evil. The fall was complete. Everything, everything was corrupted including our free will and our minds. The Protestant believes we have no free will, everything's predestined, God is irresistible, we have no free will and our minds are corrupt. Okay? If nature's corrupt, where can we find the sacred? Because the sacred only makes its appearance to us in nature. Take away nature, you take away that area in which the sacred makes its appearance to us. One of the problems in the modern world is that we have fewer and fewer images of the sacred. Why? Because nature has been destroyed, it's taken away. If you go to the sciences, sciences will give us no ground for the sacred or God or transcendence. They can't go there. So the sacred has been disappearing in art. You know from television and movies that most art is, deals with either horror, they're horror, 90% of what's coming out of Hollywood is, are horror films. I don't think that's, let's say 80%, let me be careful here. But it's, a, it's a, the greater majority of works. Or it's cynical or it's sentimental. It's sentimental in the sense that Hollywood does not show the cost of love. For a Christian, the cost of love should be a crucifix, a cross. For the Protestant, it will not be. Protestant art tends to be sentimental because it's already been done. You have to do some struggles to recover yourself, but not go through a cross, not an ordeal. A Catholic is called, he knows that he may be called to the cross. That the cost of our love may be a crucifixion. That is, we have to learn to give up our lives to put ourselves away to love another, for the good of another. So the, the, the theology for the last 300 years has had a direct bearing on art. Where's the sacred? Where's their art showing the cost of love? Okay. Now one of the reasons I'm going here is this. <laughs> Some of you are gonna think this is outrageous, but I'm gonna make this claim. It's, it's the piece I'm working on right now. Science cannot give us miracles. It cannot prove them, right? Be its, its assumptions make that impossible. It cannot deal with, science cannot get, go to beginnings and it cannot go to ends. 
The empirical basis means it has to be subject to experiment and provable by experiments. That's the nature of modern science. Can science demonstrate a miracle? No, it cannot. All it can do is prove or verify the evidence in support of a miracle. So science can say, yeah, that's believable, that's believable, that's believable. But they, they cannot reproduce a miracle. One of, one of the tenets of science is that something can be reproduced. If you can predict it, if you know its knowledge, you can reproduce it. If there's DNA, you can use it to show things. Science goes to laws. Things that cannot be other than they are. Right? Science has to do with those things that cannot be other than they are. Otherwise, how can they predict them and how can you cure anything? You'd be living in a mystery. Right? No? Science cannot deal with miracles. It cannot prove them. It can't duplicate them. Can philosophy? No, it can. Philosophy can talk about miracles. It can make an argument in favor of them. We cannot get miracles from science. They can prove evidence, which is not going to convince a lot of people. <coughs> we cannot get it from philosophy. Philosophy can talk about it. Plato does an amazing job. St. Thomas, to me, is the greatest philosopher that's ever lived. The only place where we can go to get miracles with any trust is literature. <laughs> Try that one on. Okay. Because absurd that's going to sound. Hold, everybody hold on just for a second. One of the things that literature has done for this, just to <laughs> all the skeptics out there, my wife is making faces at me right now. Um, one of the things that literature has done for us, science cannot, science could never do this. Philosophy cannot do this. We went back and we entered into a Greek world and experienced it exactly as the Greeks did in the Iliad. Not as a modern American. We went into that world, became a part of it. Hmm? There's a wonderful child's book that Suzanne got our our, um, one of our um, um, grandchildren who just had First Communion. It's a book by Hildegard. What's it called, Doc? The Secret Garden or Garden of Wonders? A couple of books. There's a book, huh? Well, it's about her, but it's got lines from her. Um, two books in which a young girl is being mentored by a teacher who's giving her lines from Hildegard, who is a mystic in the Middle Ages. And the girl steps into the book, which to me is a perfect description of what happens for us. When we, when we, enter, Moby, when we enter Moby Dick, that experience becomes one, a part of our own existence. It's in us now. I'm trusting it is. It's hard to believe any of you could just cast it out. That's been true of every work we've read. Literature took us back to the Greek world. We entered into it, actually experienced as the Greeks did. Not the Romans or the Italians, the Greeks. The Iliad, the Odyssey. We went into Rome. We went back to ancient Rome in the Aeneid and experienced that world, not as Greeks. One of the fundamental points I made, when you enter the Greek world, you enter a world that is absolutely individualistic. Achilles in his pride, Odysseus in his pride. Absolutely individualistic. When you go into Virgil's world in the Aeneid, you enter into a, a world of we, the common good. It's an entirely different world. Homer took the Iliad and the Odyssey both into that work. We've gone through it. He assimilated it in. First six books follow the Odyssey, the last six books of the Iliad. 
He takes that past and transforms it through a Roman pre-Catholic we sense of experience of things. You know that Aeneas doesn't do what Odysseus does. He doesn't put his comrades at risk. Everything he does is with the sense of the others. We entered a Roman world. We experienced it exactly as the Romans did. When we read Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice or Othello, we went back to Florence or Venice. When we read Moby Dick, we went back to our beginnings in America. We entered into that world and experienced as they did. We're reading Hawthorne right now. We're going back to a 16th century time and it's becoming a part of our experience. Is there anything more Catholic? And is there anything more miraculous? We take it for granted because we pick up books all the time. It's a miracle. We're being lifted up, put into another world, and it's, it, it broadens our world, it becomes one of our own. Is that not miraculous? The trouble is that 90% of, of stories and literature is crap. Thanks, junk. It's a better word. You're better than I am, Mary. <laughs> Pardon my life. It's junk. I mean, most of it's entertainment. It's break stuff, right? I mean, we read it. But it still takes you to that world. Yeah, well, but, I mean, there's, I'm saying this because there are worlds we're invited back to that I don't, I don't always think are that wholesome. But there's a difference between um, escape literature and mediocre literature and really great literature. All literature takes us someplace. Some of it is, I mean, we, you know that there's lots of art that's not good art. Just, I mean, particularly what's going on today. The, uh, the ideologies that are making their way into modern art is just sad to see what kids are, the responsibility it, it puts on parents to, to be careful of what kids, you know, what they're... But the point I want to make is that in literature we can actually experience miracles. They've happened in every one of the works we've read. I've already gone over this. In the Iliad with the shield, you can, you know, you can take every work. In the um, Moby Dick, we experienced the miracle at the end. What happens when um, um, Ishmael, who's going towards that bubble, like an Ixian figure revolving, he's on his way to hell. And suddenly, quick, quick, coffin pops up. The, the fowl and the sharks are all prevented from getting. Something amazing is happening. Modern critics? Inscrutable. God. <laughs> Which is another way of saying, I don't believe in miracles. Um, I do. <laughs> I think Melville does too and he makes that pretty clear. The point that I'm making is that um, literature can help us experience a miracle. Not something we know about. This happened in France or America or someplace where it's an about knowledge in our head, yes, we actually experience it the way we do Othello when he kills his wife. It's an actual experience that we share in going through. It's not an idea in our heads. It's an actual rendered experience. And I've said this before, literature gives us knowledge by experience. It returns us to the world. Okay. So, I just want to remind you, those are general points that we've talked about often over the, you know, the course of our time together. They're going to be important. There's a real relevance of them here because Hawthorne knows he's writing for an audience that has ceased to believe in miracles. The Custom House is proof of that, but even Scarlet Letter 
and he has that line where he says something about Hester at a time when people were um, more in were, people were less incredulous people were more ready to believe in miracles than people living at his time because he lived at a time in the modern world when people were already ceasing to believe in miracles and you know that that was a problem for Melville lots of his critics criticized him because they said this is too fantastic this stuff we're waiting for him to grow up because they're, both of them are addressing a world in which people no longer believe in miracles. And you know that one of the concerns that I've raised is once part of our church broke off and turned away from the sacraments, Christianity slips into a moral code. It's not a sacramental world anymore. It's not a world in which miracles happen. It's a moral code. And everybody holds that moral code against each other. That's what we saw in uh, Moby Dick's. That's what we're going to see in spades in Scarlet Letter. Okay? So just opening sort of background comments. Let me stop. Any, any questions for we? Michelle, did you have something? Oh, I just, um, you know, I was just trying to, like, explain to my kids for, like, the longest time about this literature and, and the way that you just explained it. <laughs> just, like, finally got the answer, <laughs> you know, about experiencing the miracles and, and just experiencing, I, I don't know, I'm thinking the reason why we can't, like today is because we don't like I was reading a book um, by Cardinal Sarah about um, the silence about having silence quiet silence mm -hmm. and um, you know, our world is just it's just too fast it's mm -hmm. moving it's just going and, and uh, remember Boethius Description of the wheel revolving on the on the on the perimeter, the circumference. It's going too fast. It's just noise. It's not until you get to the center that you approach a um, a quiet or a peace or a wholeness. Um, that was one of one of one of the great images of. Let me offer another example too while we're on Melville because I don't think, I, it's a book that I wanted to read. I did it with St. Francis, but I, I'm so aware of my age and I just don't know how much time is left here. Um, I wanted to do Billy Budd. In Billy Budd, it's his last story that he wrote. It's about a young kid who's in, um, what do you call it, forced into war. Um, it's drafted. There's, there's another word, but, word, but yeah. And he's aboard a ship, and it's the steel kilt story. I 
told you about it then when we did Steel Kilt. Remember, Steel Kilt was the noble um, Dexman, and Radney was the first mate who envied him because of all of his talents. Steel Kilt had all these noble talents, and he's a young Adam. That's how Melville presents him, a young Adam. And um, Steel Kilt threatens him, and or I mean, Radney threatens Steel Kilt, and Steel Kilt says, "You touch me, and I will." kill you, remember? And they put him in jail and he leads a revolt and you remember, we went through all of that. That's the Billy Budd story. Melville develops into a Billy Budd And remember in that Steel Kilt story, Steel Kilt is spared. And we hear a story of a guy who's spared too, that a guy who had intended to kill somebody is spared by, because Moby Dick takes out that guy. In Billy Budd, um, the first mate hates Bud, envies him, exactly as the first mate did in, because he's so noble, he's so talented, and that guy, it's Agamemnon and Achilles. Agamemnon's got all this authority, and Achilles is this. He's got all these extraordinary natural gifts by nature. He, you know, he's just gifted that way. So it's two kinds of authority. Um, Billy Bud has the same kind of experience, and he strikes the first mate except the ship is in war, so Melville has to go to a, diff a greater depth to deal with this story. If Captain Veer, which means truth, if Captain Veer lets Billy off, and he wants to because he knows Billy is good and the first mate provoked him, he sets a bad precedent because then other people can do it. He has to hold him accountable to the law. That's, that's an eternal problem. It was there in the Iliad, it's been there in every work we've ever read. If we let laws go, we're lost. If we hold to them too rigidly, like the Puritans, not good. He has to execute Billy Budd. The story, and it's a very short story. You all, could, you all should read it. It's part of, I mean, it's, it's Melville, again, at his best. He executes Billy Budd, and the last statement that Billy Budd makes before his execution is, God bless Captain Veer. No resentments, no grudges. He knows that Veer had to do that. And he, instead of resent, because like, like what's at the center of Moby Dick? Being a victim. I don't deserve to be wounded like that. Billy Budd doesn't do that. He doesn't play a victim. He says, God bless you to his captain. He's hung. And Melville's description, is, I should have brought the book just to read the description. I'll bring it next time just to read. In the description, it describes Bud being, and so it's Rose Bud, Billy Bud. <laughs> He's taken to the dawn, and it's like, and it's described like a rose. Are you getting the the pun? Bud is budding. It's in youth. It's not full develop. Billy Bud. Bud takes the hanging, and he is he's raised up with the rope. And it describes him in a glorious moment. It's like nature approves, and it, and it describes nature as giving a benediction. It's as if nature surrounds him and blesses him, because it was something Veer had to do as a as a like a father figure. He had to do it, even though he didn't want to. He had to do it because if he didn't, the cost would have been great. Billy Budd, like Christ, accepts the punishment. It's, an, it's a crucifixion moment. It's, a, it's an amazing moment. And the, the interesting thing is, when he's hung, there's no loosening of his bowels. Because ordinarily when men are hung, their bowels loosen or shaking or something. None of that. 
And the doctor, that is the scientist, <laughs> this is so funny, here he is again, this, like Chillingworth. The scientist looks at it and can't figure it out. Can't explain it. A miracle has just taken place. That's the point. How many, how many critics will read that book and see a miracle? They'll be with a scientist and say, inscrutable. <laughs> God, it's gonna, the word is going to be marked on my gravestone. Inscrutable. Um, a miracle has just taken place. We could experience it in the work of literature. It's an actual experience. We go We're not talking about it. We go through it. It's one with us. So literature can do that sort of things. That's the great danger. Literature can go do lots of things that are really not good. But in really great writers, I, you know this has been my claim, they're close to prophets. There's something prophetic in these men. They take us so close to Christ so that we can experience these things more deeply in our world. Okay? Hawthorne is doing the same thing. He's taking us into a world of romance where improbable things are going to happen. The modern reader is not going to believe them. He's facing that kind of audience. Flannery O'Connor, modern Catholic writer, looked at Hawthorne as her sort of teacher, her mentor. That's what she had to face as a modern Catholic writing. I hope we'll get to her someday. <laughs> someday. Let me stop. I'm going to turn to the book now. And, uh, any questions? about the absurd kind of attributes I'm, the qualities that I'm attributing to literature. Nobody's going to take me up on this, these outrageous claims that I'm making for poetry. I like how, how you put it that you're, you're, you go to the place, you're part of it, you know, I, because that's that's what that's what that's what you read. Because you want to go somewhere and do things that you don't do yourself. Yep. So. It's one of the great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the movies we've watched together. Is there anybody who doesn't live in that movie when we are reading the book? You know, good movies take us into them. We become part of the action. We feel them. One of the things that stories can do that they can deepen our powers of sight. They can also change our hearts. They help us to feel things. Great poetry helps us to feel, to, they, it helps us to order our emotions, to feel what we should. One of the reasons I get so upset at modern literature is for the reason I told you, it's either cynical or sentimental. Sentimental that asks us to feel something where there's no cost. But when there's a cost to something and somebody overcomes it, we, feel, we enter into that. It, it touches our heart, it helps form our hearts. I think every move, um, departures, to me, it was a tenderly human movie, and the wife and husband had to go through a lot. Um, the judge, the family difficulties were deep. What the father and son came to at the end? Miraculous. <laughs> I need to stop. I need to stop. Okay, let's. Any questions about. Okay, I want to ask, um, I want to go through what is Hawthorne doing in the Custom House and what is he doing in the story? And why does he begin this story with the Custom House? And I've asked you all to read it. I want to go through the Custom House 
And then I want to um, look at the opening of the story itself. Let me take you through some of the some of the passages in the Custom House. Remember that there's been a change in administration. The Whig Party has taken over and Hawthorne's on his way out. And he's describing, so, so Scarlet Letter starts in the present. In fact, let me, let me make this statement now and not wait on it. Just to, In almost every work that we've read, there have been two settings that were important for each other. Let's just take Othello. There was Venice and Cyprus, right? In Merchant of Venice, there was Venice and Belmont. Remember where Portia came from. Shakespeare often uses two settings by way of making something clear about both of them. Are you all following? Merchant of Venice, remember Portia came from Belmont. Belmont, beautiful mountain. Her father, she grew up in philosophy and the arts. She was well educated. That's why she could bring that education to bear in that trial when nobody in Venice would have been able to do what she did. So we've seen works where there are two settings. Shakespeare does it constantly. Moby Dick, Nantucket, the sea, right? Major, because Man Nantucket gives us an image of the um, New England um, Protestant respectable world. The sea allows us to enter into metaphysics, what's going on beneath. In Scarlet Letter, there are two settings. There's the custom house in the present, and there's Salem or Boston. And it's interesting, think about this. In, the, in custom house, we're in a modern world that's defined in terms of mercantile interest, making money. That's what the custom house is doing. It's dealing with money. Yeah? There's no religion, there's nothing sacred. Um, we're going to see how comic it is in a second. It's the custom house in the present. It's where Hawthorne works. And when he works there, he stops writing. All the creative energies in him stop. He goes to sleep. As a matter of fact, when you look at all the men in the custom house, once they get into the custom house, all they care about is sleeping and eating. <laughs> the only thing he didn't talk about is sex, and I think that's because he was too Protestant to talk, because in the modern world it would be sleep, eat, and sex. But in the custom house, just eating, getting fat, and sleeping. Um, in Salem, it's the prison. There's almost no mention of church. It's rare. All the activities take place around the prison or the scaffolding. So the two settings for Scarlet Letter are the Custom House and Salem in 1620, 1640, sorry. But it's Salem, but yeah. And the setting there are, are both places of punishment. The prison and the scaffolding. So hold those two images together because those images in a sense define the dynamics of the story, right? Just the way that um, Nantucket and the sea did. So he's, he's on his way out and he's describing his experiences and he says in, the, um, in page 8, it's a couple of pages in, I'm, I'm, we don't, we're not going to have the same so just follow along as, as well as you can, okay? Cluster all these individuals together as they sometimes were with other miscellaneous ones to diversify the group. And for the time being, it made the Custom House a stirring scene 
More frequently, however, on ascending the steps, you would discern in the entry if it were summertime or in their appropriate rooms, if wintry or inclement weather, a row of venerable figures sitting in old-fastened chairs, which were tipped on their hand lanes back, they were all sleeping. Um, that's what they do. Um, he says the next page, that's the paragraph that says, this old town of Salem, my native place, go down a few lines. Yet though invariably happiest elsewhere, there is within me a feeling for old Salem, which in lack of a better phrase, I must be content to call affection. The sentiment is probably assignable to the deep and aged roots when my family has struck into the soil. That speaks for so many of us. I mean, roots are so important. Um, and in America, it's becoming more and more a rootless world. I mean, people are, there are no roots. He says, he goes back and on the next page, um, the, the paragraph, but the sentiment is likewise its moral quality. He describes his um, progenitors, his forebears, and um, the severity of their persecutions. They were all Puritan, and they all did cruel things. He describes um, one of his forebears as dragging a woman through the street as a punishment. Um, his son, too, inherited the persecuting spirit and made himself so conspicuous in the martyrdom of the witches that their blood may fairly be said to have left a stain upon him. So deep stain, indeed, that his old dry bones in the Charter Street burial ground must still retain it if they have not crumbled utterly to dust. I know not whether these ancestors of mine bethought themselves to repent and ask pardon of heaven for their cruelties, or whether they are now groaning under the heavy consequences of them in another state of being. At all events, I, the present writer, as their representative, hereby take shame upon myself for their sakes and pray that any curse incurred by them, he goes on, um, be removed. Why is he writing this story? It's a Christ-like act. Here it is again. Remember, one of the defining characteristics of the epic, you take the past, you carry it forward and redeem it as you go. That's the burden all of us, whatever, whatever wounds we carry, doesn't matter. We've all got them. Our task in life to be with Christ is to carry the past forward and redeem it as we go. He consciously picks this up. The whole motive is to atone for their guilt. So one of the questions you're left with is how does he do this? Okay, it's a major question. I don't want to an answer it right now, but keep that in mind. How does he do that? Um, Funny. This is delightful. His description of the of the sort of father of all. I'll come to it in a second. Just, the one thing he loves most in life, you remember, is goose when it's cooked the way it should be. Um, um, he's describing the men and how much they're becoming like animals. On my page 15, uh, it's the pair, it, it would be sad injustice just above that. I soon grew um, like them all. It was pleasant in the summer afternoons. Um, he, he just becomes sort of slothful. He gives in. Um, go down, it would be a sad injustice, he goes. Then moreover, the white locks of age were sometimes found in the thatch of an intellectual tenement in good repair. 
But as respects the majority of my corps of veterans, there will be no wrong done if I characterize them generally as a set of wearisome old souls who had gathered nothing worth preservation from their varied experiences of life. They seemed to have flung away all the golden grain of practical wisdom which they had enjoyed so many opportunities of harvesting and most carefully to have stored their memories with the husks. They spoke with far more interest and unction of their morning's breakfast, of yesterday's or today's or tomorrow's dinner, than of the shipwreck of 40 or 50 years ago and the world's wonders which they had witnessed with their youthful eyes. He says, the paragraph beginning, the father of the custom house, and now he goes on to describe it. He says, go down, middle of the paragraph. Looking at him merely as an animal, and there was very little else to look at, he was a most satisfactory object from the thorough healthfulness and wholesomeness of his system. He sleeps, he eats, that's all he does. He's an animal. Um, so we're watching host Now think, think about this. He's going back to 1640 when, um, when America was settled. This is 1850. It's two centuries later, just two centuries. And that commitment to God that was the spirit of our family has disappeared completely. It's completely secularized. There's no interest here in God at all. Um, but he says, um, wonderful here, um, couple of paragraphs no longer seeking nor caring that my name should be blazoned. He used to care about what he did because he wrote and his name was on stories that God published. Now all he's got to show for himself is that stamp. <laughs> he puts his stamp on, you know, things that get sent all over the world, but it's a rubber stamp and it's no identity at all. But then he says, but the past was not dead. Once in a great while, the thoughts that had seemed so vital, so active, he describes what happens. Um, one day he went up um, into the upper room. This is in a paragraph that begins, but one idle and rainy day, in the middle of that paragraph, I chanced to lay my hand on a small package carefully done up in a piece of ancient yellow parchment. This envelope had the air of an official record of some period long past when clerks engrossed their stiff and formal geography on more substantial materials than at present. There was something about it that quickened my curiosity. He goes on. He picks it up, and you know that um, a page later, while thus perplexed, he says, he says, I happen to place it on my heart. It seemed to me the reader may smile, but I but must not doubt my word. It seemed to me then, as I experienced a sensation not altogether physical, yet almost so as of burning heat, and as if the letter were not red cloth, but red hot iron. I shuddered and involuntarily let it fall to the floor. Now, he has to explain this because who's going to believe this? He's saying, I give my word, it's true. And I just want to put it there. Are there some, I'm going to, in fact, I'm going to say this about Hawthorne. Are there some human beings, men and women, who are so much more sensitive to what goes on in the world around them that they're going to feel things far more deeply than other people? I'll just leave it at that. But he says this and here is the first intimations of something miraculous, improbable, because he lets it, it's like it, it communicates a burning sensation to him. 
Um, but now this is where I want to go on page 30. The, the, he learns about the story of Hester Prynne and that's going to get us to the story. <clears throat> but he says here in this paragraph on Hester Prynne's story, they probably fancied that my sole object, indeed the sole object for which a sane man could ever put himself into voluntary motion, was to get an appetite for dinner. Because that's what everybody does there. Go down. Um, um, so little adapted is the atmosphere of a custom house to the delicate harvest of fancy and sensibility. Because remember, it's just going to make people crusty and indifferent. All they care about is food and sleep, money. Um, that had I remained there through ten presidents yet to come, I doubt whether the tale of the Scarlet Letter would ever have been brought before the public eye. My imagination was a tarnished mirror. Now stop. That's one of the definitions of the romantic imagination. Because what, Faulkner's, or what Hawthorne's giving us right now is the romantic imagination. It's, it's the genre he's writing out of. My imagination was a tarnished mirror. So one of the things that the romantic imagination gives us is something from within himself, like a mirror that will image the world. But his here is tarnished. It's been dulled. Work has dulled it. You've heard me say this before. We become what we do. Work can become inhuman. We can turn into machines. We live in mechanics. This is what, one of the principles from Dickens, Charles Dickens in the industrial age. We live in a technological age. How many people live with a computer in front of them all day long? In a, working with a machine all day long. My imagination was a tarnished mirror. It would not reflect or only with miserable dimness the figures with which I did my best to people of it. Okay? Go on over the paragraph of the imagination faculty refused to act. Moonlight in a familiar room falling so white upon the carpet and showing all its figures so distinctly, making every object so minutely visible, yet so unlike a morning or noonlight visibility, is the medium the most suitable for a romance writer to get acquainted with his elusive guests. There is little domestic scenery of the well-known apartment, the chairs, it goes on and on with all these things. All these details, so completely seen, are so spiritualized by the unusual light that they seem to lose their actual substance and become things of intellect. He takes them into himself in that light. So moonlight invests something in them. Stop and think about this for a second. Under noonlight, things are so bright we almost can't see them. Put them in moonlight where shadows come in and there's a, what do they call it, that black-white, the, the, that painting technique where it's the contrast between yeah. yeah, the contrast um, emphasizes certain things and gives them a greater importance. Um, Thus, therefore, the, um, the floor of our familiar floor has become a neutral territory, somewhere between the real world and fairyland, where the actual and the imaginary may meet and each imbue itself with the nature of the other. Ghosts might enter here without affrighting us. It would be too much in keeping with the scene to excite surprise were we to look about us and discover a form beloved but gone hence, now sitting quietly in a streak of this magic moonlight. He goes on and on, um, go down a few lines. 
This warmer light mingles itself with the cold spirituality of the moonbeams and communicates, as it were, a heart and sensibilities of human tenderness to the forms which they fancy summons up. It converts them from snow images into men and women. Glancing at the looking glass, we behold deep within its haunted verge the smoldering glow of the half-extinguished um, anthracite, the white moonbeams on the floor, and repetition of all the gleam and shadow of the picture, with one remove farther from the actual and nearer to the imaginative. Then at such an hour and with such scene before him, if a man sitting all alone cannot dream strange dreams and make them look like truth, he need never try to write romance. Now, the question is, is he imposing something on the world? Or is something spiritual from within him um, making it possible for him to see something more that other people don't see? That's the problem for the romantic imagination. That was the problem for Flannery O'Connor as a Catholic who believed in grace and God and, and had to tell stories in a way without doing what Homer did, you know, by putting the gods on the, in the story. She had to write a story in such a way to make us aware that something else was going on. So here towards the end of the Custom House, he's giving us a defense of the Romantic Imagination. I'm going to stop here just to close this because you know that it's at this point he's found this um, packet and the Scarlet Letter and the story about Hester Prynne and now he's going to tell us the story. Okay. Now let me, let me just stop here before we start the story. Why does he, why does he start Scarlet Letter with the Custom House? Because you know I've, so most people are not going to read this. They're going to get interested in the story. They want to go to the Scarlet Letter and read. A Custom House story? Why? Why did he do this? And why is it important? When he, when he found the, the, the letter, basically that created the suspicion. Where did it come from? What's it about? So that pulled you deeper into the story. And now I wanted to find out why. Yeah. And plus the, the gold trimming around it. That was, I guess, her own doing. Uh, yeah. To make it not so bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that he found those official papers wrapped with that letter, and those were official proceedings from that time. And so that makes everything in here seem true, that it really did happen. And I think his talking about the custom house kind of tells us what kind of person he is. Go ahead. What he noticed a lot of things, yeah. and he felt like if he stayed there any longer, he could no longer be a man. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, and yeah. Like, he had to do something. He had to do something other than he was doing it. So the, yep. the letter and the, the papers really excited him. Yeah. Anything else? Stendhal, I think, that also writes a book based on something that happened, you know, and makes it his own, but it, it's based on a, um, so I don't know, it's just, it's just that giving you that, no, this, this was true, this came, right. you know, this came right. from, right. from something that happened. Right, right. He's justifying the story so that people who say unbelievable, he takes that away. 
I mean, both, what both of you have said. He's authenticated. It's official. This happened. It's on record. So by, by putting it in the custom house, he authenticates this. He justifies it. It makes it real. People can dismiss it. But if they do, they're going to dismiss an event that actually historically took place. It's like people dismissing the Christ story because they don't want to believe in miracles, so they deny it all. Hawthorne's taking that away. And, 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 and in a wonderful way, he's doing more. I mean, it's, it's, to me, it's a wonderful satire on the modern world. You know, everybody, this was the most religious world. I'm going to come to this in a second again. This was the most religious world or place in the world. And look what's happened to it. They've all turned into pigs and animals, truly. Um, any other... Melanie, you got a thought? I can, I can, feel, I can feel a burning sensation at this distance. <laughs> Come it's on. burning. Um, I thought that he uh, established this divine intervention. He was in the custom house wasting his talents. Yes. Bored to death. Um, and but he had been so comfortable that uh, with like when he talked about Zachary Taylor becoming president that was supposed to happen there's no bad fortune because then he found the scarlet letter and it, it burned a, an idea inside of him that the story needed to be told yeah. so I think that was yeah. yeah I was convicted by this by the custom house story because he displays how uh, a person's career, a work, a trade can evolve into this series of minuscule actions in support of some kind of commerce. And you know, I've, I've worked for a federal agency for 30 years. I know. I know. Yes. Particularly in federal, for any big bureaucracy. You know, particularly the federal government, yes. I think about teachers' unions or any union or, you know, whenever you've got a settled position and you can't shake it, it's so easy to give in to the lowest things in yourself, you know, not, not ask more. In that sense, it's a wonderful work of redemption. I mean, he's, to care that much about his past and aware of, of the um, wrongs his ancestors committed, and wanting to do something to atone. So one of the things to take into the Scarlet Letter is that the spirit of it, however we look at it, carries an atoning action, a spirit of wanting to atone for something. So it leaves us with the question, how does he do that? How does he do that in the Scarlet Letter? But any other, any other comments? Okay, I want to make one more broad comment before we start the Scarlet Letter itself. Susanna and I were at dinner tonight and asked her to what her thought was about the center of this. What's the central intuition of the... It has to do with sin and redeeming it. Because Hawthorne's going to tell us a story about He's going to go back to a founding generation and he's going to present it. My claim is that he's going to present it and do something with it that's going to re-found America. That he's going to bring a spirit to that re-founding that the founding generation did not have. 
So it's the power of poetry. It, it's God, God does that. There's no, remember, there's no past and future for God. It's all an ongoing. He can take the past and redeem it. We are asked to pick it up and redeem it. That's one of our chores. Um, if we get too caught up in it, it'll overwhelm us. If we turn away from it, we deny a gift to us. The question is, how do we do that? So it's one of the fundamental questions of Scarlet Letter. How does he do that? I want to just make this note before we start the Scarlet Letter itself. One of the amazing things about Scarlet Letter is this. Hawthorne is the only author of note that I'm aware of that goes to the founding of America. Melville does it in some way, but it's, he doesn't deal with it explicitly the way Hawthorne does. And one of the interesting things about America at this point in history is this. If we, if just if we stayed with literature, if we looked at any of the works of literature that we've read up to this point, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Divine Comedy, Merchant of Venice, Othello, Moby Dick, um, leave Moby Dick out. Every one of them deals with a country and its indigenous people. The Greeks, the Romans, the Italians in Dante, go where you will. Um, the Italians in, in Merchant of Venice or in Othello. America is the, Moby Dick, or sorry, Scarlet Letter, um, it, it's Salem in Boston. This is the only work in which a writer goes back and what we see is something we have never seen in history before. I hope I'm, I'd be glad if anybody took me up in this and corrected me on this. In my reading of literature, I can't recall anything close to this. America's unique in, in one major respect. The, the settlers, and everybody today is going to make nothing but bad of them. They're going to say they were cruel, bigoted, you know, greedy men that these, you know, committing sin and exploiting. And If we look at this group, remember they started in England. They were fleeing England. The Catholics and Puritans were chased out of England by the mainstream Protestants. The Puritans went to the Netherlands, and then from the Netherlands they came here. So they came to found a city on a hill. America, what's unique about America, it's, it's the only country that I'm aware of when I look at all these other countries that I'm mentioning, in which um, a people has come from outside to establish a new kind of regime, a new kind of nation, a new kind of people. A city on a hill, you know, um, what's the, the lampshade? Not under a lamp, not buried. So see down the hill, a light shining for the people. Um, to create a new regime. Absolutely new, under God. I can't say that strongly enough because I think we take it for granted, but I can't, I can't recall another nation like that, quite like this, certainly after Christianity. And this is after the coming of Christ, not before. I mean, somebody could argue Rome was founded in this, by, you know, when the brothers, when one of the brothers killed the other, it was founded, it was brought into existence on a murder. All foundings are violent. Every founding in history has been violent, wherever you go, whatever people. But in this case, it was a group who were motivated by religious sentiments who wanted to create a regime for God, under God, to practice their religious beliefs freely because they couldn't in England and they couldn't completely in the Netherlands. But the interesting thing is they create a theocracy. It's a polity under God, a political regime under God. And they become as punitive 
as any people they fled from. And we're going to see this in the opening, I mean, with what happens with Hester. But the important thing that I want to emphasize here is this, that this is a new regime. Nothing like this has ever been done before, and it's absolutely Christian in spirit. Okay? That's Salem and Boston. That's our setting. Now, here's the question that I want to pose, and I want to read some passages just quickly to get us started on the readings. You know that it begins with Hester emerging from the prison and being confronted by the magistrates and asked to um, confess who the partner in her sin was. And she refuses to give Dimsdale up. And the irony is that um, the magistrates ask Dimsdale to convince her to speak the truth and she says she never will. Um, she returns to her cell and it's there that Chillingworth, her husband, confronts her. He happened to arrive just then and witness the whole scene. And the, one of the interesting things about that scene is that Hawthorne presents him in such a sympathetic light. Um, he started out as a good man. He loved reading. He's like Prospero in Shakespeare's The Tempest. He loves reading, spends all of his time reading. He sends her off to the New World um, to prepare a place for them, but he gets taken up with his learning and goes away. And he's returning now to discover that his wife is um, had a child, an illegitimate child. And he didn't come with that intention, but now that he sees it, his first motive is to find out who that man is and take vengeance. So one of the elements of suspense in the story will be, will he succeed? Here's a very scientific, modern man vested in sciences. He looks to the sciences, not religion. So you've got a contrast between all the magistrates who look to the Bible only, sola scriptura, in fact, we'll see in a scene, they're not going to look at philosophy. They want nothing to do with anything except scripture. That's their guide for everything. Um, he's a man of science. He doesn't look to the, he trusts in his scientific techniques to accomplish what he wants. So he's going to set out on a course of vengeance. Moby Dick, vengeance quest. Chillingworth, vengeance quest. Behind them, wounds, being a victim, suffering. Um, <clears throat> how does Hawthorne do what he does? Okay, just a couple of quick comments, and I want to um, do some reading here to get us in the book and then come back to this question. How is he doing what he does? First thing, the first chapter ends with this comment. This rose bush, by a strange chance, has been kept alive. It's right next to the prison house entrance. Kept alive in history, but whether it was merely survived out of the stern old wilderness so long after the fall of the gigantic pines and oaks that originally overshadowed it, or whether, as there is fair authority for believing it had sprung up under the footsteps of the saint and at Hutchinson as she entered the prison door, we shall not take upon us to determine finding it so directly on the threshold of our narrative, which is now about to issue from that inauspicious, inauspicious portal, we could hardly do otherwise than pluck one of its flowers and present it to the reader. It may serve, let us hope, to symbolize some sweet moral blossom that may be found along the track or relieve the darkening close of a tale of human frailty and sorrow. What is that rose? Why is he doing this? 
There's two important things here. One is Anne Hutchinson. I want to get back to her. But what is that rose and what's he doing? What's he handing us? Miracle. I'm going to be a scientist here. Can you prove that, Mary? Can you flesh that out at all? Okay, so let's see. In the beginning, it said about the kind of there was a wild rose bush. Mm -hmm. Okay, so people probably considered Hester to be wild in what she did, but yet she was a rose bush. That's how I look at it. Any, sir, I just. Anybody else? Something, something beautiful and, and something that's bad and dark and evil. The prison itself was like a dungeon, so to speak. Beautiful, yeah. yeah. Doug, what do you make of it? Um, he's finding something beautiful for the whole time as he goes through what he thinks is a sad and dark tale. And I wonder if part of it is not meant to symbolize the book itself, that he's handing us this story um, that's going to be dark and full of sorrows, but that's beautiful, you know, to, to relieve the dark, thank you, thanks, to relieve the darkening close of a tale of human frailty, because the whole tale is going to be about human frailty and sorrow, but there's going to be a real strange beauty, and I'll put this on. Will there be a grace in it? Is there a grace in this story or not? Um, the other, another thing to remember here at the beginning is that, remember, when the first founding fathers, the pilgrims, came, they were united by the two fundamental, the two most important principles of the Reformation, sola fide, sola scriptura. Faith alone, scripture alone. Nothing else was needed. Reason was corrupted, man's free will was corrupted. What, what was most important was the grace given man by his faith and the grace given to him by scripture. Those were the guiding principles of everything they did. When they arrived, the, the, the community immediately split in a conflict. Anne Hutchinson said she followed the promptings of the Holy Spirit, um, that faith alone in the Holy Spirit guided her, and she criticized the community for following what she thought was a covenant of works, which they identified with the Catholic world. The community said that um, faith alone is important, but evidence of the Goodness of your faith is conformity with the rules of the church. So you've got Anne Hutchinson saying, faith alone, I'm following the Holy Spirit. You're following a covenant of works, you're doing what the Catholics do. And they said, evidence of your faith is conformity to the world. So immediately in the founding we've got um, conformity to codes of respectability. This is the Christian world and an individual um, opposing it. I want to just, I'm going to throw this out, I don't want to go into it, some may argue with this. What, what defines the, modern, the tensions in the modern world? Conformity of respectability on the one hand, and um, what's the, the oppositional, what I call it, the 
It's the, it's the adversarial that calls the respectable group out for its hypocrisies. Those are as defining today as they were, even though they're secular today. But that split, so the two solas, which were meant to unify, actually divided. Because if you follow faith alone, it may lead you to um, a different reading of scripture than those who follow scripture. And if you follow scripture alone, it may make you criticize those who think they're following faith. So there was a buried division in the principles that united them. And we see it here in the beginning. Hester Prynne is put outside of that by her sin. Hawthorne doesn't make the comparison explicit, but often he, he suggests a comparison between her and Anne Hutchinson. Sainted Anne Hutchinson. Hester's going to be cruelly treated in this, okay? So that's the opening here. I want to just read some passages. Just follow me for a second. When she comes out, Um, the first scene that Hawthorne gives us um, he says um, she comes out it's early Boston, it's Salem it might be that a sluggish bond servant or an unduly child whom his parents had given over to the civil authority was to be corrected at the whipping post, it might be that an antinomian, antinomian means against law, a Quaker or other heterodox we're doing something, but here it might be, it might be too that a witch like old Miss Hibbins, Mistress Hibbins, she's going to keep coming in and out of this. Um, and remember, she's looked at as a witch. Twenty years off, the witch trials would take place. 1690, 50 years, roughly 50 years off. Here's what happens. Here's what she's greeted with. Bottom of 44. Good, um, good wives, said a hard-featured dame of 50. I'll tell you a piece of my mind. It would be greatly for the public behalf if we women, being of mature age and church members in good repute, should have the handling of such malefactresses as this Hester Prynne. What think ye, gossips? If the hussy stood up for judgment before us five that are now here and are not together, would she come off with such a sentence as the worshipful magistrates have awarded Mary? I trow not. If, she, if the hussy stood up for judgment for us five, what would happen? That's one. She doesn't think um, it would go as easily as it has under these magistrates to the men. People say, said another, that Reverend Master Dimsdale, her godly pastor, takes it very grievously to heart that such a scandal should have come upon this congregation. The magistrates are God-fearing gentlemen, merciful over much. That's a truth, added a third autumnal voice. At the very least, they should have put a brand of a hot iron on Hester Prince's forehead. Madam Hester would have winced at that, I warrant me. But she, the naughty baggage, little will she care what they put upon that bodice of her gown. Well, look, she may cover it with a brooch such as like heathenish adornment and so walk the streets as brave as ever. Ah, but interposed more softly a young wife holding a child by the hand. Let her cover the mark as she will, the pang of it will be always in her heart. Oh, do you talk of marks and brands, whether on the bodice of her gown or the flesh of her forehead, cried another female, the ugliest as well as the most pitiless of these self-constituted judges. This woman has brought shame upon us all and ought to die. Is there not law for it? Truly there is, both in the scripture and the statute book, 
Then let the magistrates who have made it of no effect thank themselves if their own wives and daughters go astray. Characterize these women. There's five of them. One of them is sympathetic. She's the one who's pregnant. What's going on in the scene? Why does Hawthorne begin like this? What do we learn? Hmm? Showing the judgmental nature of the people. Yeah. As you said, the moral code is the main thing, so she's, she has to be punished for breaking that. Yeah. And watch the degrees. I mean, one is just critical. One says, put a brand on her forehead, a hot iron. Another says, kill her, execute her. And they have, according to their minds, scriptural warrant. Is there any ironies in this scene? I mean, one of them is that, I mean, as you say, that they're so judgmental, but any other ironies to this scene? What does scripture say about, I mean, where's the irony in scripture? Lie. They're, they're overlooking the, the experience, of the, the, the story of Scripture when uh, the uh, adulterous woman is brought before Christ. Right. How can you overlook that? You're right. <laughs> well, it's interesting that they they invoke they invoke God. But they're entirely overlooking that. And the interesting thing about it, I just, I, I, priests sometimes give me a little bit worked up on this. Because priests so often come out of this and say, forgive, forgive, for, you know. That's what Christ does. But Christ also says to her, go back and sin no more. He, he, the judges walk off. And I'm assume ashamed because they don't do anything. What they do, we don't know. But he says to her, go and sin no more. He puts her back under the law. Um, and this, they're overlooking that. So there's a tremendous irony. There's another irony here. What's the other irony? It's a huge irony. Yeah, right. Right. That's part of the problem. Um, huh? Each one is their own god. Like, I think this... Punishment should be, I think this judgment should be, they, they're playing God. Yeah, yeah, and calling God down. There's this also, people say, said another, that the Reverend Master Dimsdale, her godly pastor, takes it very grievously to heart that such a scandal should have come upon his congregation. What's the great irony here? He's the father. <laughs> So just in this one scene, what does it tell us about the way people see other people? Skin deep. By outward appearances. And she's already convicted. They've sentenced her. They've put a brand on her, which is the sign of her sin that she's supposed to carry her life. They cannot miss it. So at the center of this novel, like Melville's, is the whole humanistic question, in, interpretive question, how we interpret the thing in front of us. How do we read? And here we see that people don't read very well at all. They're projecting judgments on her without seeing something. For all the re They don't carry a sense of sin in themselves. They do not. They're self-righteous. They're vindictive. They're spiteful. They don't see things as they are. They don't have a sense of sin in themselves, and they do, and they. <laughs> the, the deepest of all ironies, Dimsdale is the pastor. He's the leader of the congregation, spiritual leader. They invoke him, 
without even knowing he's the father. Does he know he's the father? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Does everybody see the grimness of that? Because what Hawthorne, I mean, Hawthorne's covered the depths of our range of vision. Hester's committed a sin. We're going to look at it in a second. Dimsdale's the partner in that sin. He's the most important religious person in the community. And the problem is they do not make, remember, the whole problem with Calvin is you're either among the elect or you're among the, among the damned. If you've committed a sin, it's evidence that you're, a, you're among the damned. You're evil. Hester's going to struggle with that in all the passages that we see. Dimsdale's the religious leader of the community. He's got no sign in him. And we know that he's in, we'll find out if we don't know already, he's in sin at, at least as grave and maybe more because he's not dealing with it. So she doesn't reveal it because she doesn't believe it because she's a believer? Or are we going Okay, answer that question. What's your response to Right. Of the yeah. And probably they'll kill it. I don't. I don't. I. It's hard for me to believe they would, but I don't. You know, I. I that's my first thought. But she knows. They just want to know out of curiosity. Well, there's something vindictive. There's something spiteful yeah. in this group of women. They really. They want. What here? One way of showing how good they are is how readily they can convict another person of their sin. Indirectly it shows how good you are, how different you are from that person. So their vindictiveness, the, the, judgment, the, quick, the quickness to be judgmental um, is partly, a, I mean, a partly reflection. They don't see a sin in themselves. And so they easily condemn somebody else. Um, it's a way of showing how good they are, how righteous they are that they can do these things. But does everybody see the grimness of that irony? That Dimsdale is the religious leader of that group. His sin, in some ways, may be greater, and they don't see it, and Hawthorne does. So immediately, and we don't know it right away, immediately Hawthorne has taken us in to see the world exactly as those women do. It's like a Jane Austen novel. We don't see the ironies. Gradually, we're going to learn but we didn't see things either because we didn't know that Dimsdale, and he's the minister who says to her, confess. So Hawthorne's putting us in that same situation where we're partly blind and don't see it, and encouraged to see things according to surfaces the way these women do. The man corrects it when he says, women, be still, you know, quiet some in a little bit, but. Um, Chuck, did you, or Lori, did you have, did your light go on? Did you have something? Sorry? Did you have something? Okay. Here, I want to quickly, just we're past time, but I want to do this very quickly. A couple of passages, that's the opening. Um, towards the end of that chapter, we get a description of Hester from the inside um, going back in memory to her childhood. And it's partly a way of escaping the pain because it's just too great. And then she comes back to the present um, because she can't escape it, and neither can Hawthorne. But I want to just, in the next scene, you remember Chillingworth comes to speak with her 
to find out who the husband is and then he, um, she tells him she'll never confess and he makes it clear that his concern is not punishing her, she'll be punished by her own sin, that he wants to find out who the man is who did not confess his sin. But I want to go here. Chapter 5, which describes Hester. Opening page, down a ways. Throughout them all, giving up her individuality, she would become the general symbol at which the preacher and moralist might point and in which they might vivify and embody their images of woman's frailty and sinful passion. Thus the young and pure would be taught to look at her with the scarlet letter flaming on her breast, at her, the child of honorable parents, at her, the mother of a babe that would hereafter be a woman, at her, who had once been an innocent, as the figure, the body, the reality. She is the figure, the image, the symbol, the body, the reality of sin itself. That's the result of Calvin. How can you tell whether somebody's among the predestined saved or damned? By their sins. There's no way she could escape giving evidence because she was pregnant and unmarried. There's no way she could escape it. The body, the reality of sin, and over her grave, the infamy that she must carry thither would be her only monument. Go down now, middle of the next paragraph. It was as if a new birth with stronger assimilations than the first had converted the forest land still so uncongenial to every other pilgrim and wander into Hester's wild and dreary but lifelong born. Go down. It might be too doubtless it was so, although she had the secret from herself and grew pale whenever it struggled out of her heart, like a serpent from its hole, it might be that another feeling kept her within the scene and pathway that had been so fatal. There dwelt, there trod, the feel of one with whom she deemed herself connected in a union that un unrecognized on earth would bring them together before the bar of final judgment and make that their marriage alter for a joint futurity of endless retribution. Over and over again, the tempter of souls had thrust this idea. She is in such guilt about what she'd done that she doesn't even like entertaining the idea of Dimsdale without thinking that it, it will condemn him too. And she's going to say that a number of times when she looks at other people. But it says here, it's, it's as if a new birth had taken place. Over a few pages when it's describing um, she's describing Hester um, using her needlework. It probably was that there was an idea of penance in this mode of occupation and that she offered up a real sacrifice of enjoyment in devoting so many hours to such rude handiwork. She had in her nature a rich, voluptuous, oriental characteristic, a taste for the gorgeous he described. Um, to Hester Prynne, it might have been a mode of expressing and therefore soothing the passion of her life. Like all other joys, she rejected it as sin, this morbid meddling of conscience with an immaterial matter, betokening it is to be feared, no genuine and steadfast penance, but something doubtful, something that might be deeply wrong beneath. What's he saying there? Is, there, is everybody clear on what he's saying? I think he's saying it's as if she's still half holding on to the sin of passion she committed with Dimsdale. So even if she's doing a penance, it's like going through the motions of a penance instead of changing yourself, you'd still hold on to something of the sin. 
go on over again. He describes her passing people, coming back and forth, and people looking, some, mostly the men ministers, looking at her critically, and women looking down at her. But then again, an accustomed eye had likewise its own anguish to inflict. Its cool stare of familiarity was intolerable from first to last. In short, Hester Prynne had always this dreadful agony in feeling a human eye upon the token. The spot never grew callous. It seemed, on the contrary, to grow more sensitive with daily torture. But sometimes, once in many days, or perchance in many months, she felt an eye, a human eye, upon the ignominious brand that seemed to give a momentary relief as if half of her agony were shared. The next instant back it all rushed again with a deeper throb of pain, for in that brief interval she had sinned anew, had Esther sinned alone. Now, go down a few lines. Um, what is this letter endowed with? It says, the letter endows her with a new sense. She shuddered to believe, yet could not help believing that it gave her a sympathetic knowledge of the hidden sin in other hearts. She was terror-stricken by the revelations that were thus made. What were they? Could they be other than the insidious whisperings of the bad angel who would fain have persuaded the struggling woman as yet only half his victim, that the outward guise of purity was but a lie and that if truth were everywhere to be known, no shown, a scarlet letter would blaze forth on many a bosom. She gets really upset with herself because she doesn't know if the fiend, if the devil, isn't putting the stuff into her head. But she looks at people and has a sense that they may be concealing a sin herself. She doesn't know if that's a temptation or if the sin has given her a sensitivity. Now my question is, what is Hawthorne doing here? In the opening, he gave us those five women and what they did. In these other th scenes, he's describing Hester this way. What's he doing with that contrast? What's happening? I suggested in the opening, we're encouraged to see things by surfaces, the way they see them. We don't see the Dimsdales involved, we see what they see. He's the minister, and we're gonna learn that he's not, and suddenly we're gonna see, we didn't see things. We thought we did. And now in these descriptions of Hester, he's giving us all that's going on with her. So what's he doing with that contrast? How is he doing? Good. Melody, do you have something? He's comparing Hester to the gossips because he's saying she's, because she has sinned and recognizes that sin, she can see, she can have empathy for others whereas the other women don't recognize their own sins, so they won't recognize right. anyone else. Yeah. And his language, remember, it said it's as if she was given a new birth, a new sensitivity. It's only, and remember, I, we, we talked about this in Ahab, in uh, Moby Dick. When people think they're above sin, they're going to be quick to judge other people. They're without sin. And in the, in the opening, they do it drawing on God. What he's making clear here is that her own experience of sin and the fact that she's called out gives her a new life. That it's made her sensitive. I mean, she's suffering from it everywhere. But it's also making her sensitive to other people that she's gotten. She doesn't know right now what to do with it. Is the devil tempting her? How does Hawthorne, I don't want to, I don't want to answer this. How does Hawthorne leave us with this? Sorrow, I've gone through this definition. Suffering, suffering itself means a new birth. Sophete, sophete, 
to bear up, to fructify. Because once, once we sin, his words, a new life, we become conscious of something new in us. It's like something's born, a new conscious. We didn't have before. Hester's carrying something these other women don't because she is aware of her sin. So, um, what's it going to mean? How is this going to play out? Why is this important? Here at the beginning, I think we can say pretty safely, what's wrong with the women in the beginning is they have no sense of their own faults. They're quick to be spiteful, accusing of somebody else. They want to show how good they are by condemning or kill her, put a brand on her. That's a sign of how good they are. What we're seeing in Hester is something very, very different. The fact that she's sinned has given her new life. She's aware of something that the others are not. How will that help her? What will happen? What will be the cost of this? What is she going to have to bear that these other women don't bear? And what is she bearing, the Dimsdale? I mean, how is he going to... Real problem here. The, the, and I hope everybody's clear. The problem for Dimsdale, if he, can, if he confesses, he's going to lose the whole community because he's, he's the image of what they all should be. Admit his sin and what are they all going to do? So there's a serious problem here at the beginning and how, how people experience sin, how they look at it. And, and let me just leave with how many of us in the way that we go around the world, judge people by outward appearances. Hawthorne, I'm, I'm, I, I can't read this without being amazed. I don't know how you guys are finding it. But his attention to detail and the way he constantly describes Hester in ways that reveal her inner life, outward things that show inner things, the, the signs of things and what's inward, is amazing. He sees so much. He's helping us to see things. How much attention do we pay to details? Or do we ever look things? <laughs> I mean, I, I, was it Mike's conviction, you know, being in the, <laughs> working in a bureaucracy for lots of years can do a lot to us. Um, anyway, these are the opening concerns in Scarlet Letter. What's Hawthorne going to do with them? My question is, he's committed himself to atone for the crimes of the past. What's he doing? How's he doing it? What's going on in this story? Okay. Let's leave it there. Okay. Chuck, Lori, you guys have a safe trip. Be safe. Um, Lori, keep an eye on that guy while he's in Paris. Um, bless you guys. Have a good week. Okay, we'll see you guys. See you guys in a week. We'll finish. We'll finish the Scarlet Letter up. We should be able to do this in just a few weeks. It's not a long book. Okay.